what is providence? If you notice in your Bible, the word providence is not found there. The word comes from two Latin words, which means to see beforehand, to have a foresight, to see something beforehand. You see, God sees everything from the end to the beginning. So providence means foresight. Providence is God seeing all things in the light of the future. He sees ahead. He plans ahead of things to accomplish his purposes. And so God uses his infinite goodness, his power, his wisdom to govern all things. And this morning I'll be making references to our confession of faith, 1689. Calvin says, God's providence relates more to his hand, more than his eyes. It is not that God sees everything happen, happening. It is God orchestrating all things. And this is a very important doctrine for us. Because it tells us that the God who created everything did not walk away from the creation. He continues to govern, he continues to rule, he con continues to sustain. Chapter 5 of our confession. The first paragraph is a very helpful definition for us of what providence is. Chapter 5 of London Baptist Confession of Faith. It says, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for the, sorry, to the end for the which they were created according unto his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. This is really the fullest definition of providence, that God upholds, directs, disposes, governs all creatures, all actions, all things, And the aim of providence, the confession says, is to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of his wisdom, his power, his justice, his goodness and mercy. The aim of providence is that all these characters of God might be displayed. God governs all things from the least, from the tiny droplet of rain to the biggest decision that the rulers of this world have to decide. Everything is under his hand. Everything in this world runs under his will. B.B. Warfield says that we cannot be robbed of God's providence. And because we cannot be robbed of his providence, we are assured that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no tribulation, no anguish, no persecution, no famine, no nakedness. Because everything that happens in your life and my life is ordained of God. Brethren, this doctrine is the basis of all comfort. Calvin says, we have innumerable evils that beset our life. There are so many things that threaten us to die. There are so many diseases out there. And yet, God holds everything in place so that he allows that which he allows into our life for his own glory, for his own purposes. As you study the providence of God, this is 
not a difficult doctrine to understand. It is a difficult doctrine to believe. And as we come to it, we need faith to believe it. And the first thing I'd like us to see as we define the providence of God is to see that providence is all about God. The first thing is providence is all about God. God is the beginning and the end of providence. Providence begins and ends with God. And the purpose for which he has created everything is to glorify him. He is the purpose of the world. Everything, every person, every entire being exists for the glory of God. And all of creation are created to reflect and to display his character, his goodness, his mercy, his justice, his infinite wisdom. Everything has been brought about to display his marvelous character. So the doctrine of providence is not about you and me. God is not going to answer all our questions on why he does what he does. God is not going to satisfy all our curiosities. God is not going to make us feel good about everything. God may answer some, but he doesn't have to simply because Whatever happens, happens because of his infinite wisdom. Because creation doesn't exist for itself. Creation exists and happens for God, for his glory. So under the providence is all about God. I'd like us to see providence in light of history. And if I, if I could ask, where do you think providence begins? Where does providence begins? Before? Yes. Um. Theologians uh, believe that providence begins at creation. Yes, it's true, God has been there before, but in light of history, they place it that providence begins at creation. It begins at creation, it continues in history, and it ends at the judgment with God. If you look at, at the end of Romans chapter 11, what theologians have called the closest Thing to systematic theology, Romans chapter 1 to 11. Romans 11, 33 to 36. Someone can read for us that. Romans gives us a systematic history of God's redemption plan. And we come to verse 33 to 36, and Paul simply says, God is beyond us. His ways are just incredible. And when we think about it, verse 36, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we think of the history of the world, it's all about God. The whole history of providence is God is at the center. That's why we cannot study history without God. We cannot study geography without God. You cannot study 
the nature, the environment, human activity, without speaking about God. Because that is what providence is all about. It begins and ends with God. And so creation is all about God. That's why Darwin is wrong when he says creation is about mutation. Job chapter 38. You can turn there, Job 38. uh, God is asking Job questions relating to Job 38, chapter, chapter 38, verse 4. Bible says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy, or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? And God continues to go on and on. God is saying here that when he created the world, everything was about him. God did it for his glory, and all is for the glory of his name. We, we surely cannot miss that from the pages of scripture. So, providence begins at creation. Secondly, providence continues with God after creation. The God who made everything continues to govern and direct. Even though he created the world in six days, he did not abandon the world. He continues to uphold, to sustain, to preserve all things in Psalm 135, Psalm 135, someone can read verse 5 to 7. Psalm 135, verse 5 to 7. For I know, for I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in the in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise and rain, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouses. So we have there a geography lesson. We're given details of uh, metrological system, how it works, and the conclusion of all is, is God. Jesus Christ, whom all things were created through him and for him. Hebrews 1.3 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So in all these things, Christ exists. God exists, and God holds all things together. God authored it, he created it, he designed it, he spoke it into being, and they keep going because they are sustained by God. And then thirdly, providence ends with God. Providence ends with God's judgment. If you turn to Psalm 145, verse verse 13 someone can read that Is faithful in all his words and 
yes, his kingdom reigns forever. His kingdom is eternal. God is infinite. And God weaves everything together in his design to glorify his name and to accomplish his purposes. So providence ends with God. He is the beginning. He is the end. And then secondly, like us to see that providence is all about God. Then secondly, providence covers everything. Providence encompasses everything. The, the writers of the confession wrote in full what providence is, not to leave any loopholes, because providence covers everything. And this means two things. It means that God alone determines providence. God alone covers providence. He determines providence. He has no rivals. He has no competition. He never changes his decision. And secondly, it means that God's providence covers all things so that there is no ex exclusion. It covers living things, non-living things. It covers the rocks, the sand, everything that may seem insignificant to man. God's providence covers everything. He controls everyone and everything. Let's look at Isaiah 46, verse 8. Someone can read Isaiah 46, verse 8 to 11. Remember this and consider to call it to mind your transgressors. Remember the former things of For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a part of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. God declares there very clearly that there are no rivals to his throne. There is no competition. He declares that... declares the end from the beginning, verse 10 says, and from ancient times things not yet done. There's a doctrine called open theism. And it's a doctrine that believes that providence is open, that providence is not closed. That God is not certain what will happen tomorrow. God is leaving room open for men to decide. If you read Isaiah, Isaiah 46, 8 to 11, you wonder what Bible they read. Because God is very clear there that he determines the end from the beginning. And this doctrine diminishes the power of God by claiming that providence is open, that it is man who can decide what will happen tomorrow. Isaiah there is very, could not be more clearer. He says that I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. There is no room for alteration. If God has made an eternal decree, no one can thwart his plan, as Job says. God alone governs providence. Let's see the impact of that in Psalm 33, verse 8 to 11. Psalm 33, verse 8 to 11. Someone can read that.
Aquilana, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood up. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing, he frustrates the plans of the peoples, the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Yes. They are kings, they are rulers, they are emperors. And here it says that these people, they make their plans, they go to war. And God says he brings their counsel to nothing. God makes their plans of no effect. It is this counsel that stands forever. So providence is a matter of God. Providence covers all things in the sense that he alone determines providence, and he has no rivals. He has no competition. Ephesians 1.11 says that in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things without exception. Jesus applies this doctrine. If you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, Matthew 10, 29, the application of this doctrine, someone can read that. So nothing is meaningless. Nothing is insignificant with God. This is not a metaphor when he says that um, not one of your hairs will fall to the ground with the, apart from God ordaining it. It's not a metaphor. It means that none of your hair indeed will fall to the ground except by the specific will of God. The very hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows everything about you. God knows when you wash your head. He knows the, he ordains the air that will go down the drain. God governs all things. Things that are alive, things that are not alive. The smallest to the greatest. So providence is all about God. He governs everything. And then thirdly, we have an inevitable conclusion that if everything is about God, everything is governed by God, then inevitably, providence is good. Thirdly, providence is good because God is good. The confession says that providence is supremely wise and holy. It doesn't mean that everything that happens in isolation is good because we know clearly that there are evil things that happen here on earth. But it means that all those things that happen, whether they are good or evil, whether sinful or righteous, God works all things together for a good end. So no matter what we think is going to happen or has happened, providence is ordered by a good hand of a good God to the good end. There's no challenge, there's no mishappen. This is stated clearly in, in Psalm 145, verse 9. Psalm 145, verse 9. I'll read. The, the Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And this is speaking good in a general term, that the Lord is good to all. Providence is good to the extent that even things that are evil are used for good purposes by God. doesn't mean that God will explain everything evil that happens in our life. In fact, God hardly explains everything. God explains very little of what happens. The examples throughout history to tell us that God can take something very horrible, very terrible, and show us how his will is good. Take, for example, these 10 brothers who chose to destroy 
this young man, this young brother, they see him coming through the field and they throw him into the pit. They seek to kill him, but uh, they mitigate the sentence and decide to sell him into slavery. They dip his garments in blood and they go to his father and tell him about the painful lie that his son has been killed by a wild animal. Not all that Jacob grieved for many years. Now, what is good about that? What is good about such lying and violence and deceiving and nastiness? What good is it about the guilt that the brothers faced for many years? A guilt that ate them up for so many years. It's easy for us to say that there's nothing good about that. What is good about an innocent man being falsely accused and thrown into prison to languish for three years? This is why it is good. Look at Genesis 45 verse 7. Genesis 45 verse 7. Joseph is speaking to his brothers. Verse 4 says, uh, Joseph tells them to come near to me, please. Then jump to verse 7. He says, and God, and he tells them, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Joseph is speaking here after a number of years. When he looks back at the events that have happened in his life, he says that it was God who sent them here, there, who sent him to Egypt. It's easy for us to say, how can that be? How can God take the evil actions of evil men and use it for good? And we see clearly here how it works. All the providence that happened in the life of Joseph was to train him to be a man that he needed to be. Everything was ordained in the life of Joseph was for a necessary good purpose. And often God does not explain everything that happens in our life. Everything we must receive by faith. It's easy to see difficult circumstances, frowning providence, and see nothing good in them. Everything is under the providential guidance of God. Though it may be sinful, though it may come from a wicked man, God will use it for his good. The story of Joseph is not enough, is not sufficient. We have the story of our greatest savior, which is sufficient. The one who was sent to do a greater work. The story of a perfect man who was abused, mistreated, denied, betrayed, and finally crucified, the most wicked act in the history of mankind. Yet, for that wicked act, the providence of God accomplishes the greatest good. In Acts 2.22, Peter explains in the day of Pentecost, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, brethren, the cross was not a tragedy. 
It was not an unforeseen event. The cross was a plan worked out by God in his providence. Those men did not have to do it, but they chose to do it anyway. And he accomplished the greatest redemption man could ever receive. And so if ever we are ever forced to doubt the goodness of God, go back to the cross of Christ and you'll be left with no doubt. And then lastly, we've looked at what is providence. Lastly, we're going to look at how does providence work? How does providence work? Maybe I could open up to you to respond to that question. How do you think providence works? Anyone? How is God? Yes. I think um, you best understand providence work in hindsight. Trying to, to see the things that God made us go through and the circumstances that He orchestrated uh, for for His good, for His glory, and for our good. So looking back, I, I remember reading that providence is best understood by looking back. Yes. Because we cannot know the secret will of God, like with certainty, uh, only the revealed will of God. So in understanding that God works all things for our good, mm. then we can confidently pursue his will and his glory, knowing that that's, that's the path that providence will lead us. Yeah. And now looking back, we can see Maybe even the things that we planned and did work out were still uh, in his providence. Just like Joseph's story, um, he did go out seeking to be sold to the Egyptian slave merchants. Uh, he, he was simply obeying his father to go take, to check on his brother's hand. He was simply loving the coat of many colors that the father made. And, and that part set him to, to be the prime minister of Egypt and even redeem it his Egypt in the death of Christ. So looking back, as we have read, looking back, that is how God worked with providence. Yeah. So I hope I'm Yes, somewhat you've answered in um, maybe the question is not very clear. How does providence... Sorry, sorry. I think I should ask it this way. How does God work in providence? Yes, I agree that if we look at history, we get a better grasp of how God works. Uh, the confession makes it... Para, uh, chapter, chapter 5... But, uh, paragraph 3 it, it tells us how God works in providence it says God in his ordinary providence maketh use of means yet is free to work without above and against them at his pleasure God accomplishes his work in providence through means. Theologians have called it concurrence. God works according to the word and the principles that he has given. He has made the world. The world is governed by his principles, but he does not walk away from them. The world runs according to those principles. So the first thing is that God works causing all things as the first cause. Is the first cause. Whatever happens, happens according to his ordination. So, you could think of 
the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God in his providence preserved them from the fiery furnace. And God working through secondary courses, through second courses, you could say, you cannot go home today and start a fire and think that you'll be preserved like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the idea there is, God. first of all, God is the one causing all things to work. He's the first cause. So by providence, he orders things to follow according to the nature of second causes. So it's the first cause, but providence also works through secondary causes. My think of a footballer is about to score a goal to put the ball in the net. You may ask, how did he score the goal? And the first cause is he kicked the ball. And if you look at the secondary causes, the intricacies, you could say the player is skilled, the player is agile, the, the, the player is well-trained, he has muscles in his feet. So as much as the goal is scored, which is the first cause, God is working through secondary causes. God makes things happen by secondary causes. And he says that, it says in the confession that he, od he orders them all to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. You may think of the, of the death of Ahab. Remember that he caused the death of Naboth. He conspired and uh, grabbed his vineyard. And Elijah says that, his, he, he, that he will die and the dogs will lick the blood, his blood. And it takes about three years. You could imagine maybe Ahab was taking care of himself, very watchful, maybe never going out of the palace. But we are told after three years, this is what happens. Jehoshaphat tells, advises him to join him in a war. The king of Syria had attacked Israel, and we are told that there was a random uh, arrow that was, <laughs> we don't know how it, it went, but it hit Ahab in his chest. You can imagine the, the, the king has his bracelet, but some way, somehow, some, in some way, the arrow finds his chest. So how did the king of Israel die? He died in the first cause because God spoke through the prophet that King Ahab will die. When you look at the secondary causes, how did he die? He died in a battle. He went to the battle disguised, and there was a stranger who took an arrow, and it pierced him. And the arrow, he did not die immediately. He died later on in the day after he suffered a fatal wound. And you see God working through first causes and second causes. So God makes use of means. And, and this is something very important. This is something very relevant to us. And God working through the means his means he works through the laws of nature. The confession says he's, he's free to work outside the laws of nature. He's free to work above the law of nature. He's free to work against the law of nature. Remember the example of Abraham. He was told that he was going to have a child. How old was he when he had Isaac? 
hundred years. God works against nature. In Second Kings chapter six verse five, we have the example of the sons of prophets. They were falling logs, and he says that an axe head fell into the river, and the prophet Elisha he cuts a stick and he throws where the axe is, and the axe head floats. God is free to work against natural observable laws. So the natural laws are set, but God is free to work above them and beyond them at his pleasure. And this may bring us to the whole question of miracles. People, there are people who say, I don't believe in miracles because they are contrary to the laws of nature. But miracles are not contrary to the power of God. What does God do in miracles? He does not suspend the laws of nature. He simply feeds new events into them. We have the virgin conception of Christ. Mary had never been touched by a man. What does God do? God feeds events into the law of nature. The power of the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And within her, someone glorious was conceived. So the conception was miraculous. But the birth was ordinary. He was born like all of us. You can think of the first miracle of Christ at the wedding of Cana. He turns water into wine. See, the new, a new element is introduced and it becomes wine. There's a law of redirection. That is what happens. New events come into the law of nature and it redirects the cause of things by God's remarkable supernatural power at his own pleasure. So if God really governs and directs us and controls all things, Surely we are not miserable Christians. We know that the one controlling everything is good. Sometimes we may go through difficult things and we may not understand his invisible hand. So we may wonder, how do human choices fit with providence? If, if God is in charge of everything that happens, where does free will fit in? If, if God has established universal laws, natural laws to work, if God has determined the person you're going to marry, the place you're going to live, the tribulations and the persecutions that are, will come in your life. What is the place of free will? The answer is God has established everything to work according to his nature. You see, the world is structured around cause and effect. What you saw, you will read. The way you will live, it will have an effect on everything else that pertains to your life. So that God can heal diseases through medicine, but he can also heal through remarkable occurrences. It is all God, it is through his laws, And whatever God does, it takes into consideration the choices that we have made. If we say that we are not going to read our Bible because God is sovereign, God works in providence, it automatically goes to say that we are not going to grow in our spiritual life. There is a cause and effect already. Proverbs says, the lot is cast, but it's every decision that comes from the Lord. So there's no such thing as chance. 
everything is ordained of God. So God ordains the primary means, he ordains the secondary causes. In other words, God does not work in a vacuum. God does not direct God does not directly intervene from heaven all the time. He has set up things to run in their course. And under normal circumstances, everything has a cause and effect. And because of that, we understand that we have to choose. And whatever we choose, it has an effect. So everything runs in this world. The decisions that we make, the kind of life that we live, kind of choices that we make, they have an effect because everything runs according to his ordinary laws. Let's look at an example in Acts chapter 27 verse 30. Acts chapter 27 verse 30. read. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. God had already revealed to Paul that he'll be saved from the shipwreck. Paul had to, God had told him that he's going to survive and everyone in it was going to survive. Does Paul say, I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to wait on God to save me? No. He acts. That is not Paul's approach. As much as God is says that we are going to be preserved, he has given us the means to be preserved. So that is secondary causes. God uses secondary causes. The farmer knows that if he does not plant his seeds, there'll be no harvest. He cannot stay and wish that the crops will grow. He must plant the seeds. In spite of the means, there are extremely rare exceptions in which God directly intervenes. But you see the exception the law always proves the law. We have the example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They did not burn in the fiery furnace because God preserved them. It doesn't mean that we can go home and light a fire and expect not to be burned. So we believe that ordinary secondary causes are used by God. So the reality of God's providence rules out the idea of chance, of good fortune, or luck. It's easy for us to say, Yes, I understand we can use those phrases when we are speaking laterally in our conversation. But in theologically, it's impossible because God sees all things, God ordains all things, he governs all things, and he accomplishes all things for his predetermined plan. So providence covers everything that he plans. And the whole history of God bringing everything to pass, we've seen is for his glory. Romans 8:28 to 30 says that God is ordaining all things. God works all things according to his purpose according to his sovereign will for those who love him. You can turn there, Romans chapter 8. And you see the purpose there in verse 30, that for those that he has called, he has also justified 
and those that he has justified, what is the end of it is to be glorified with him. So everything that happens is for his glory. Matthew Henry says, God's providence seems to contradict his promises. And sometimes it does look, look that way because there are occasions in which providences of God can be very strange. Thomas Watson says, God is to be trusted when his providences seem to run contrary to his promises. And so the interpretation of providence requires faith, requires our faith guided by the word of God. Because blind unbelief looks at everything in the world, everything that has happened in history and in the history of the church. And blind faith does not refer to God. But we who are Christians can look back everything and interpret everything with God at the center. And I guess this is helpful for us to understand providence and we must read it from the end to the beginning. What is the end of everything? It is to glorify God. So we see everything from that end, that everything that is happening in our life is towards that goal, to glorify God. Your education, your marriage, your career, everything that God has ordained in your life is towards that purpose, to glorify God. God. I don't know whether you have any question or any comment to make. Let me close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you ordain all things, you govern all things. Nothing is impossible with you. We pray that in light of your truth, you may help us to walk in your ways, to stand firm in your truth. Let us we continue to study on your providence will help us to live according to your word. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.